Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book 2 Free Will and Other Compulsions A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net Featuring the vocal talents of Miss Calendar Jason Bly George Clensos Derek Moore With original music by Danny Shade This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now, episode 11. Hello, it's me. Ha ha, you can't get away from me. And now, I have a whole raft of extreme science fiction up at storybundle.com. Check it out, it's only for a couple of weeks, and it's way too cool to do justice to here. I am J. Daniel Sawyer, author of this morass of intrigue, and this is the story so far. Having struck a deal with Douglas Reeves, Jim Hartman is attempting to find out what happened to Scott Walters, but he's hit a snag in the form of a missing cat. Meanwhile, after demonstrating his intentions by letting Allie put a bomb next to his heart, Joss Kyle is proceeding in his suicide mission to the Earth's surface, with his entire fate resting in the hands of a woman who blames him for destroying her life. And now, Episode 11 of Free Will and Other Compulsions. Chapter 8 Luna City, Luna 24 November 2129. As promised, Jim found that the local security office had an Animal Location and Vector Control Department, the pamphlet on the dispatcher's desk proclaimed with deep seriousness, the importance of preventing feral populations from developing in a fixed resource environment. The pamphlet assured him that animal control was a top priority to the colony's government and that his pet was very important to them. The kind officers in the Animal Control Division would be delighted to assist him in locating his beloved companion and returning it to the safety of a loving home. The dispatcher, however, had an air of insincere regret as he explained that the Animal Control Department, all one of them, had the day off on Fridays, but handed Jim another top-secret pamphlet instructing him on how to access his pet's tracking device from his home terminal. Jim returned to Walter's apartment rather than trekking back up to the hotel room the green lady had let to him. If the cat turned out to be local, he didn't want to haul his carcass all the way back down again. Easy access to all of Walter's personal effects wouldn't hurt either. After checking again that there wasn't anything of interest in the open pit where the computer core used to live, Jim put the floor panel back on, kicked the carpet into place over it, and scooched the coffee table to where it might be useful. He then unpacked his satchel, set up his workspace, and began by drawing a circle on a pad of yellow paper, his pet vice. Allie liked paper files, which drove Jim crazy with the clutter they produced, but to work on a puzzle properly, Jim needed paper notepads. Once it was worked out, it went into a proper database, but not before. And that, doubtless following some cosmic law of poetic justice, drove Allie right up the wall. She wasn't here to get annoyed right now, and just as well. He had a lot of paper to work through. Inside the circle, he wrote, Scott Walters. On one side, he drew another cluster of circles. At the top, one labeled Shaw for the doc boss called Volish, 
At the bottom, one labeled Samantha Park for the school teacher Jim had talked to the day before yesterday, a woman whose unborn child had, Jim would lay good money, been fathered by Walters. Cassie said Walters had fallen in love with a fellow named Tyler before he disappeared. That could be a coincidence, but Jim put him on the map anyway. He should find out more about the new bow and make sure he had nothing to do with it. He gave the cat its own circle on the grounds that, if he didn't, the cat would probably kill him when it found out it hadn't been accorded proper human dignity. He filled in the rest of the chart as best he could. The picture that emerged was a mass of contradictions. It showed a gay man that felt the need to get a religion that told him that his penis, and everyone else's, was nothing to be ashamed of, but who had an affair on the side with a female co-worker, no way it was simple sperm donorship, her body language and voice bespoke a significant attachment. It showed a politically unaffiliated dock worker who was somehow involved in the underground resistance movement. It showed a man accustomed to handling vast sums of money but whose tastes in interior decorating were decidedly modest. It showed a man with a pet cat who didn't come home. People like that didn't exist. Sure, some people maintained separate lives and separate spheres, but this was more like two or three people crammed into the same space. That's what he had so far. Now, the long part of the job. He had to dig through the bundles of keepsakes to flesh out the rest of the picture. He also had to find the cat's tag number in order to turn on the tracker. Over the next five hours, pausing only to warm up leftovers from his lunch or visit the bathroom, Jim pored over every scrap of paper in those bundles. They told stories of very intense, heartbreakingly intimate love affairs. One with Mr. Shaw, which work and other obligations complicated to the point where it was painful for them both. Another one, confirming Jim's suspicions, between Walters and Samantha Park. A relationship drawn out in longhand, from co-workers to tentative lovers, neither of whom knew what to make of each other, both of whom were terrified of being found out and risking ostracism from their religious communities. But where Jim had expected perhaps a hint of blackmail, he found nothing. And that was the thing. In all of the deep scrounging, he found nothing. A suicide bomber? A subversive of the most destructive kind? Jim didn't find any evidence for that. What he found was a charismatic man who seemed perpetually just out of his depth, easily pushed over by passion and affection, but with a knack for landing on his feet. Someone who didn't show his heartbreaks, but carried them with him like secret treasures. People like this didn't strap plastic explosives to their chests. Maybe they planted bombs incompetently, that wasn't the current popular theory, but it fit better. To Jim's nose, though, even that didn't pass the sniff test. A man this maudlin would never, never abandon his cat. He might go on an emergency mission to Nineveh, but he'd board the cat, and he'd collect it as soon as he got home. Walters hadn't done that. If he had, the cat would have been in the apartment, scratching the cat food bag open to keep from starving. The shape of the puzzle resolved a little bit more. Jim had a better feel for the holes in the story now. He even had a few items on his to-do list. He needed to find the cat. He needed to find Shaw and have a long talk with him. And he needed to find out why Walters 
was connected to Briggs. But first, he needed to grab a few hours of sleep. Chapter 9 Earth Orbit 13 December 2129 Allie fingered her PPD, the screen of which contained the information she'd put off looking up until now. Joss Kyle was a slippery bastard, and the whole theatrical bit where he'd had her stab him in the heart was utterly convincing. She hadn't wanted to find out for sure whether he was serious until they were about to land. If it turned out he was bluffing, she wanted to be safely on the ground before she killed him. It wouldn't do to wind up a prisoner on a ship on a crash course. She'd waited until this morning to pilfer another one of the little remotes and syringes from the medical bay. Now she had her answer. Her PPD's screen told the whole story. The remote controls were black market Persian military gadgets, and so were the injectable explosives with transponders to keep tabs on the victim. Developed for prisoner transport. Real as freefall, serious as murder. But sleight of hand artists had been forcing people to select predetermined cards for centuries, and Joss was a superb card sharp. Not a long stretch to imagine that he'd found ways to put his fingers to other uses in the interest of deception, perhaps arranged for her to pull the one dummy from the pile. So it looked like his deal was legit, but there was no way to be sure. Whatever happened, she was not going to let him beat her, even if it meant playing the lackey. Yes! Joss, across the bridge in the pilot's seat, talked to the computer. You are a fucking prize! He punched a button on the console, and Fugitive rocked hard to starboard. Allie snagged a grab bar to keep from getting pitched out of her chair. You got it then? Oh yes. He seemed to be speaking mostly for his own benefit, even though his face deigned to point itself in her direction. There are still a few people left who remember they owe me a favor. Allie made a noise meant to approximate relief, but kept her hand firmly on the grab bar while she fumbled with the five-point harness that she hadn't fastened last time on account of being too busy reading. Okay, I'm running out of eyes here. I need you to act as a check on the approach. We're going to follow program one until we hit beacon three, then switch to program two for braking maneuvers until we hit thermopause. That's marker three on your panel. Then we move to program 18 sliding into 20 on the standard merge vector. The language he was using counted as English in the same sense that ice was a rock. Allie said, Will do. And proceeded to watch her panel on the wager that she would get her bearings before they actually died. She had a vague idea of what was going on. They had to make planetfall and do it without attracting attention, which meant they couldn't come in on any of the standard North American or Persian routes and couldn't break their airspace. Only a handful of other nations had established sovereign traffic routes to the stars, and one of them sat at the bottom of the southern hemisphere in the place where the traffic cloud was thinnest, Australia. Joss seemed to have a friend or two there willing to give him a hand. By the 22nd century, Earth's orbit had accreted enough in the way of satellites, space stations, traffic, and general bric-a-brac that navigation had become something of a black art. An entire multinational industry existed just to clear the navigation hazards from the hundreds of billions of cubic miles between Earth and Luna, and it could never keep up. As long as there was space travel, there would be enough jettisoned urine and shattered paint flecks zipping around at a zillion miles an hour to machine gun any ship out of the sky. 
Attempting to get through it without clearance on an actively maintained entry path was the functional equivalent of walking across an interstate during rush hour while blindfolded. Survival trumped stealth, both for Allie and for her captor. No, not captor anymore. She was in, and in all the way. He was her partner. For now. Allie wondered if she'd ever recognize herself in the mirror again. As Fugitive plummeted from one transfer orbit to another, Allie counted ten orbit dredges rushing past the front window. Tiny robot ships towing a series of gigantic nets, each edged by standing EM fields, sweeping up and catching orbiting space junk. Like street sweepers in streets populated entirely by litter bugs, the orbit dredges kept everything moving. Atmosphere started to pummel the outside of the craft. Allie called out the change marks, Joss stayed on top of them. Her unease aside, he knew his job, and he did it well. She kept her comments to business only, on the grounds that a man displaying that level of competence deserved the occasional respite from the abuse he otherwise merited. At 100,000 feet, Fugitive hit Glide, and her ramjets engaged. Far louder than the torch, they made Allie's ears ache. Allie called out the final waypoint, but she couldn't hear Joss's comeback, so it wasn't until the ship banked that she knew that he had heard her. Fugitive rattled as if she was like to fall apart. Allie's hands throbbed as she white-knuckled her seat, and the shaking and quaking mounted until she was sure she could hear parts of the hull peeling off and slamming into the wings. Then, as if God threw a switch, everything went quiet. Allie could feel actual gravity pulling her down into her seat. Pressure on parts of her that had been too sensitive for months had made her squirm. Goddamn gravity would drive her crazy. It wasn't her fault. Being lonely and frustrated always made her desperately horny. It was just something she'd have to live with for the foreseeable future. Fugitive's descent path was gentle, just a slight perpetual falling sensation in the pit of her stomach, like she was a teenager in a secret corner with a new lover. Port-au-Prince ATC requesting remote landing at port 357. Joss was speaking over a headset. Approach vector south 180, beacon reading 5 by 5. With Fugitive's transponder spoofed and her skin switched to reflect rather than scatter, she appeared on all tracking systems as just another private charter flight in a world with around a million such flights every day. At 13.30 local time, she slid from the holding pattern and headed for the tarmac. At 14.00, she taxied to a rest on a remote corner of the field, and her crew abandoned the bridge for quarters to pack what little they would need in the way of luggage. Joss Kyle tested the retraction spring on his garrot line. Perfect tension, full retraction, excellent. Slip it into the jacket cuff, don the jacket, one final pat-down check of all his weapons, particularly the little doses of chemical persuasion he didn't want Alyssa to know about. They weren't for her anyway. He was done with that whole distasteful business, and now that they were on the ground, she had other motivators. Joss took a final inventory of his quarters, then... Confident that he had everything he would need until he next saw Fugitive, he checked the security cams for the hallway outside his quarters. Thin bulkhead walls were vital to keep weight down, but they were not quite soundproof. He had one more thing to do, and for this last, he wanted his privacy. 
Computer, record time delay message for delivery to Cassie Orenthal, Luna City 865-435-32545. Delivery time, 28 December 2129, 0600 GMT. Give me 30 seconds, then begin recording. Mark. Joss took the actor's moment to compose himself and find the right words. Fugitive marked a tone. Allie had packed as much as there was to pack. PPDs for each, one detonator remote in her pocket, her trusty Remington fresh out of Joss's armory, money belts loaded down with more cash than God ever saw in one place. Joss got a PPD and a money belt and carried his own pack filled with God knew what. She was sure he'd decide to tell her sometime just after she snapped his neck for keeping her in the dark. Beyond the main airlock door, the ship extended its gangway. When it touched the ground, the light on the door went green. The hatch slid aside. The blue gold of the Haitian sunset struck Allie in the face like the sight of a child, long thought dead, appearing suddenly on the doorstep of its parents' home. She managed to keep her eyes dry. The humid ocean air that blasted her in the face as she took the lead down the ramp helped to dry them. At the end, a man waited. Looked like he'd been a pretty boy in his younger days, but for whatever reason hadn't chosen to arrest his aging before his face started to slip. Careworn cheeks, hard eyes, like she might expect from a cowboy in an old movie. It looked good on him. She stopped at the base. One more step, and she'd be back on terra firma, literally. The first time she'd touched true ground in almost three years. She could find nothing she'd expected that she'd feel at homecoming anywhere within her. No feeling she could identify at all. She should feel something, but she didn't. She wasn't sure she wanted to take the next step. Joss had no such compunctions. He stepped past her as if approaching the dais to receive a Congressional Medal of Honor, then stopped just out of arm's reach from the welcome wagon. Harry? Allie could just barely hear Joss's voice over the wind and the whine of the landing planes. Row? The men stood a respectful distance from one another, just out of kicking range. Neither of them seemed in a great hurry. For a moment, they seemed to size each other up. Then, as if he were throwing in an ante, Joss extended his arms, and the two men embraced, and laughed. <laughs> Fuck me till blow in the asshole. Harry was an Australian, or at least raised in Australia. Mate, I thought you was a goner in Buenos Aires. You can't slip off the grid if someone knows you're still breathing. You still owe me a bottle. Harry extended a small cotton sack at the end of a string. Twenty-eight? You betcha. So... Joss took the bag and threw an arm over Harry's shoulder, began walking with him. What news of the great Vegemite continent? He cast a glance back to Allie, warning her to hang back. She'd have given a pretty penny for a long-distance Mike. But there was one thing she could still do before she was reduced to awaiting the pleasure of the other two. Allie raised her right foot and held it forward. She pushed with her left, and her right sole fell forward and touched tarmac. Home. A word that, today, 
meant less than it ever had. Chapter 10 Luna City, Luna, 25 November, 2129 Jim awoke from a restless night with the smell of anise in his nostrils. He rolled off the couch and bumbled his bleary way to the sand unit and took a quick hose down in the shower before attempting to make some sense of his notes from the night before. Around midnight, he'd hit that zen-like state where the universe seems to make a special kind of sense and the memory stops working. When he'd been in college, he'd achieved the same state on some bad LSD and worse tequila, the one time he'd been sure he glimpsed the true secret of all meaning in the universe. Three full linen closets to the wind, he'd nevertheless had the presence of mind to write down his revelation before he passed out. The next morning, after breakfast, he had remembered this, and searched every nook and cranny for the self-authored scripture. Upon finding it, he'd decided that it pretty well did describe the great open secret of the universe, though he didn't find it particularly encouraging. It had read, Something smells like shit in here. This morning was a little better as post-revelatory mornings went. He'd taken good enough notes the night before that he knew what he had to do first among them to get to a proper working terminal. Enough people had a key to Walter's flat that Jim didn't dare leave anything behind he might want access to later. He pilfered an extra backpack from the bedroom closet and stuffed it full of his notes, the resorted bundles of letters, the printed photos, a memory card that someone else had missed, and some other odds and ends that his spidey sense told him might come in useful. Then he headed out to face what passed for a day down here in this cosmic anthill. Four blocks out, he found a coffee shop with extra terminals. Technically, he could have done the work from his PPD, but there was enough data to keep track of that the little screen got in the way, and planted his flag next to them. Once he was situated, he took his to-do list one by one. First up, Reeves. It was only 0600. Reeves shouldn't be in court yet. Jim called his private line. Yes, Mr. Hartman? Is this a secure line? As secure as anything gets these days. You subpoenaed a cache of records from the Kaiser District last summer? Yes, I know the one. I need it back as soon as possible. It's at the lab. I'll see what I can do. How urgent? It doesn't get more urgent. Very well. I'll see what I can do. I'll be in touch. Reeves hung up. Jim pulled out his earpiece, grumbling. Yeah, you do that. Under his breath, and turned his attention to Walter's stack of photos. He hadn't retained much from them the night before, so he shuffled through them quickly. A lot of photos of friends that'd require a couple of days with a good local database, but if Walters was the kind of sentimentalist Jim had taken him for, he'd have had pictures of his... Jim stopped at a stack of 50 pictures of an extremely elderly man. Laid out next to each other, they told a story, like a graphic novel. An arrival at the spaceport, trundling out on a wheelchair and standing up on rickety legs. The man was 150 if he was 10. One of the last of the original generations. Was probably well past 80 when life extension became affordable. Far too old for the first-line rejuves when they hit the market in the mid-21st century. This was a man who'd managed to cling to life and maintain for a remarkably long time. He was well-received. A giant of a man embraced him, 
definitely Walters. Jim had a picture of him from his employment jacket. Tears glistened on young and old cheekbones as they greeted one another. Family, probably, and long out of touch. They posed together against the giant Grissom windows, taking in the lunar day over Mare Tranquillitatis. They saw the town. The gallery, a rent-a-buggy ride out across the dust, the reservoir, the flying lessons. They didn't actually fly, the old man was probably too decrepit. The opera house, Kennedy Gardens, the Elon Musk glow caverns, a trip to First Town, then another to the Disney Resort on the Sunside. They did it all large. Box seats, expensive foods, these were the records of a grand tour. And then, at the end of the deck, the Luna City Cathedral. They went up to the second story and stood in the light of stained glass that rose higher than God's knees. They drank together from flasks they brought, not taking the Eucharist then. Mortonites weren't allowed, and the old man evidently wasn't a Catholic. The final three photos showed the urn, set in the memorial garden on the top of the ridgeline on the west rim of the crater. Great-grandfather, inventor, Lieutenant John Emmett Walters, USN, in loving memory of the man who lasted long enough to touch the moon. 1987 to 2129. The backs of the photos were dated from the metadata. May 2129. Not long before Walters went missing in the first place. Jim sat back in his seat and took a deep breath. Rather than resolving the mystery of Mr. Walters, the photographs only deepened it. He shook his head. He needed a drink. He punched up the drinks menu and ordered an Irish coffee, then returned his attention to the photos. There were upwards of 700 more photographs, all of which he might have to examine in detail. Finding one of the cat, though, didn't prove all that difficult. It showed up in photos of a poker night, and it had a collar with a serial number. Jim scanned the photo with his PPD and enlarged the collar. The serial number on it was legible, and had the right number of digits for the tracking number. Hopefully the tracker database didn't require biometrics or a sophisticated password. Sometimes, very, very occasionally, luck gave a good snoop a break. According to the brochure, pet registration was a matter of public record. Putting the serial number into the server returned coordinates on three axes and a corresponding address. Two levels up and not far away. Jim finished the coffee, packed up his kit, and hot-footed it to the nearest lift. You've been listening to Free Will and Other Compulsions, book two of the Antithesis Progression, written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer with original music by Danny Shade, used with permission. This episode was produced by Kitty Nakian, J. Daniel Sawyer, and Paul Streeler, and starred Miss Callender as Allie, Jason Bly as Harry, George Clensaus as Douglas Reeves, and Derek Moore as Jim Hartman. Public domain sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. 
other sounds designed and mastered by Artistic Whispers Productions. This episode was recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions Studios in Lincoln City, Oregon. It is adapted from the book The Hartman Gambit, Book 2 of the Cobracon Ascendancy, copyright 2009 J. Daniel Sawyer, and the production is copyright 2016 Artistic Whispers Productions, Inc. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, and all other rights are reserved to the author and Artistic Whispers Productions, Inc. On Earth, we surf, we skydive, we fly like squirrels, we walk high wires, we jump out of spaceships. But look out, galaxy, because here we come, fast and furious, tearing into the sky for the most extreme human adventure in the universe. Moon marathons, supernova surfing, gas giant storm riding, alien mountains and gravity games, and so much more. Extreme tech, extreme danger, extreme environments. Ten books at the extremes of human imagination and endurance for one low price. Top voices in science fiction and a few fresh faces bring you a bundle packed to the gills with brand new adventures. Extreme science fiction. Kicking ass now, only at storybundle.com. Offer ends October 6th. Man, oh man, it feels so good to be back here again, and two episodes in a row even. You may think this book is addictive as a listener, or at least I hope you do, but it's seriously addictive as a producer, and now that I'm back, oh my god, I can't believe I stayed away for so long, despite all the reasons that seemed perfectly valid at the time. As soon as I get my fingers in the music and performances of the story, book three starts flowing out my fingers again. And let me tell you, book three is shaping up to be a seriously epic and deeply twisted book. Oh, so much fun. And it's starting to look like we're going to be able to release it before the end of the year. In the meantime, if you're looking for more antithesisy goodness, I've got a bunch of announcements for you. First off, my first YA novel ever is out. It's called Hadrian's Flight, and it's about a 16-year-old boy who gets sent away by his parents when it looks like war is going to come to Luna City. And you can place bets on how well that plan works out based on how much of a bastard you think I am. That's right, this book takes place during Free Will. Well, it starts during Predestination, and it carries all the way through Free Will and ends in Book 3, and the events in the book will have a big impact on how the larger story unfolds in the main series. So, it's not part of the main series, but if you want a few more pieces of the developing puzzle before the characters get them, this is where you go get them. But that's just a side issue, really. That aspect of the book was a way for me to work out some stuff I needed to know for book three, because I'd gotten stuck. Now I'm unstuck and rolling again. I'll be over 60,000 words on book three by the time most of you hear this. And oh man, it's so much fun to be back in this world again. Anyway, the real thing with Hadrian's Flight is it's the kind of book I have always wanted to write, and I've spent years trying to learn how to write it, 
and it finally worked and I think it's gonna put a smile on all of your faces if you like the other stuff I've done particularly if you like this series and if you like good young adult adventure it's totally your thing and I hope it keeps you smiling for days and if you want to read Hadrian's Flight and get a feel for it, you can check out the EPUB full of sample chapters that I dropped on the podcast feed a few days ago, or you can just go to your favorite retailer, or for the next three weeks, you can get it at Story Bundle. That's right, the promo I just played at the break for the Story Bundle, Hadrian's Flight is in that bundle. So is the first Suave Rob book since book three is coming out before the next episode of this podcast. But it's not just me. There's great stuff in there, some of it written just for this bundle, by people like J.R. Murdoch, who does the wonderful V&A shipping podcast and has been a voice actor on Antithesis a few times, and he's got a few more roles coming up. Kevin J. Anderson, who does the Dune novels. And there's a very Antithesis-like, chewy sci-fi mystery from Christine Catherine Rush. It took me over a year to put all these people together for this bundle, and the result is something I am seriously proud of. And I think it will keep you very entertained as we go into the dark part of the year. Now, whew, calm down, Dan. All that said, there is something I owe some of you. I think it's two or three of you. Because now that we're back underway, at least three quarters steam, I need to square with you, David Deswerick, because I owe you a prize for the death threat contest low these many years ago. I have a couple ideas for what might be appropriate, and since I've made you wait so long, I want to give you a choice. So email me, and I'll get you taken care of right away. Also, there's at least one of you, and I think there are two, who I owe prizes to for the triple threat double dip contest that ran way, way, way the hell back when the first version of Free Will was premiering, and I did that in concert with Chris Lester, who was starting his second book podcast, and Philippa Ballantyne, who was starting Digital Magic at the time, if I remember correctly. Or was it Weatherchild? Anyway, I had intended at the time to send some San Francisco goodies, but life got really complicated and it completely fell off my radar and now I don't live in San Francisco anymore. However, I do live on the Oregon coast and there's some really cool local stuff up here, so I'm thinking Oregon coast goodies instead. Maybe some of the gemstones from the local deposits that I go mining at sometimes, some taffy from the local confectioners, it's like an area specialty. Fantastic stuff. But I'm flexible. If you have any ideas for what particularly you want, um, let me know. I'll see if I can afford to get them to you and that sort of thing. So anyway, if you were one of those contest winners at that time, and you'll know because you will have also gotten prizes from Philippa Ballantyne and Chris Lester way back then, if you were one of the contest winners, shoot me an email and I'll get you hooked up. And I do have one more bit of news. You might have caught in the credits at the end of the story part of the episode today, and it'll be on the blog in the next couple of days. I'm finally ready to reveal the rebranding for the Antithesis books. We've got covers, we've got new titles, we've got a new series title, and it's all due to the fact that naked people and planets and Hegelian philosophy aren't really good for communicating to most people that this is a science fiction series. 
So, um, watch the blog or my Twitter stream for the unveiling in the next couple of days, and then the next episode I'll talk about the titles and how I got to them and how I found the right mix of elements and the whole bloody story, because it was a pretty ridiculous quest I wound up going on to find these. And, by the way, if you like the Naked People and Planets motif for the covers, don't worry. We will be doing hardcover special editions just for the podcast listeners, because damn it, I like the Naked People and Planets theme too. And we should have some more news on that for you probably beginning of next year. Sometime in January we should be able to have the first one of those ready to go. And of course, uh, there is at least one Patreon patron who's probably going to be getting their special edition of the Free Will hardcover for free as part of their Patreon patronage, because that's one of the levels we got. So I mentioned we're heading into the dark times of the year. Well, because winter is coming. <laughs> which means Game of Thrones is coming back eventually, which is fun. It also means elections are coming. Ugh. Is anyone else sick of election season yet? Because this year everybody is going nuts. But fear not! We have much more antithesis goodness for you and many, many new books, both in the Antithesis universe and out of the Antithesis universe, coming your way as we move into the holiday season. If you want to get all of them without missing any and get them for a hell of a deal, support this podcast at the Patreon at patreon.com slash jdsawyer. You'll help us fund production, we'll get some money to Danny Shade for his musical endeavors, and you get yourself some pre-releases of all my new novels if you pony in for five bucks an episode. And if you pony in for eight bucks, you get all the non-fiction books and short stories too. And there's going to be a bunch this holiday season. We're looking at at least three more novels and one more non-fiction book, and there could be even more than that. We've got a uh, packed publication queue, and it's glorious. So if it grabs your fancy, help keep us going by jumping in there, or by telling your friends and your enemies about this show, and please, please do blog about us, or leave a review about us on iTunes, or tweet about us. The long absence has dulled our luster and dropped listener numbers as people frankly gave up on us, for justifiable reasons. But we want to put the shine back on this great old ship, and I want to have all of you back because you guys are fantastic! So spread the word, and do send your comments, criticisms, attaboys, and death threats to feedback at jdsawyer.net, or call the voice line at 434-933-2546. That's 434-9-DEAL-IN. And we'll do another dealing in here when we've got enough to fill a show. Chris Lester has even promised to come back on and play my foil, even though we now live thousands of miles apart. Thank you for keeping the light on for all of us here at AWP. I can't tell you how happy I am to be back again. And I'll be back again, again in another two weeks. So until then, I'll leave you with the nagging questions. What is Joss planning? And why did he land in Haiti? Who is the mysterious Harry? And what kind of history does he have with Joss? What will Jim learn when he finally locates the cat? And perhaps most importantly, will Allie turn Joss in now that she's back on Earth? Or will she keep her devil's bargain? Find out next time. And remember, it isn't whether you win or lose. It's how you rig the game.